studied German for three years uh, in school, but I never took it seriously. And my teacher told me one day that I would one day uh, regret not taking it seriously. And I believe today is the day. The first time I met Kloss was at a leadership conference at Willow Creek. We had just had a wonderful day of meetings talking about building churches for non-church people. I was greeting some pastors afterwards and Kloss was standing in the line. When he finally came up to me, I noticed two things. The first thing I noticed readily is that he spoke with a German accent. But the second thing, he looked manic depressive to me. <laughs> I didn't really realize that. I was just proving to you that I was listening to his earlier remark. But it's not uncommon for people, when they attend our conferences, to feel a kind of inner tension. And I'd like to spend just a few moments uh, explaining how I felt that inner tension in my own life. I grew up in the church. I went on Sunday morning and Sunday evening every week from the time I was just a little child. But even as a little child, I realized that what we did at church was mainly for the already convinced. I would hear sermon after sermon about how God had love and concern for the whole world. And I heard how Jesus Christ could change the lives of lost people. And I learned that we should be ambassadors and we should spread the faith. The only problem was in the church that I grew up in, none of that happened. When I stood up to sing hymns in the church, I could see a housing division right out the window of the church. And I knew for a fact that no one in that housing division was ever touched by the ministry of our church. We would agree with the pastor that we should care for the whole world. We would agree that Christ can change the lives of lost people. But it never reached the non-church people in the housing division we could see right outside the church. And that used to trouble me. It created a tension in me as just a small lad. The older I got, the more cynical I became. I thought, if you really believe what you're preaching, why don't we do something for the people in those houses right there? I remember hearing my first sermon about hell. It, uh, I was convinced that the pastor believed that there was such a place. People around me believed it. And it just made me wonder why we weren't more concerned about the people right outside the window. And I guess what really started to bother me is that nobody seemed to be emotionally disturbed or concerned or weeping about their lost condition. In other words, what started to bother me is not that we just weren't reaching them, but that we weren't even trying. I mean, it's one thing to try and to fail. It's another thing to not even try. That I never understood. That, to me, goes against everything Jesus teaches in the Scriptures. Klaus read the passage to you where Jesus urges people to invite people from the highways and byways. Now, that passage implies that some people may say no, but at least we try. Another thing started to uh, cause me concern about the local church I grew up in. As I got older, I wondered maybe if a non-church person did come into that church, that that would push them further away from God than if they had never come. A very important uh, experience happened to me on the way home from church one day. Sometimes I think God gives you uh, moments, special divine moments that change the course of your life. This was one of those moments. I was riding home from another boring church service with my father. I had heard a Stamenek sermon, a sermon that uh, was uh, designed to put me to sleep, and it worked perfectly. Uh, I was heavy in spirit because I thought the church is just so boring. While I was thinking those thoughts, my father said something to me. He said that a friend of his in business was losing his wife to a terminal illness. And he said, due to this impending loss, his friend was starting to ask questions about God. So 
So he said, Billy, I'm thinking about inviting this man to church with us. I wasn't even in high school yet, but my initial reaction to his suggestion of bringing a non-church person to our church, I said, whatever you do, Dad, don't do that. Because if he's just beginning to ask questions about God, if a spiritual spark has been ignited, if his heart and mind are open to the possibility of becoming a Christian, if you take him to our church, all that will stop. Because if he, comes, if he experiences the service I just experienced, did you ever think honestly enough about traditional church to think of how it would look to a non-church person? Now, let me remind you, church done traditionally makes perfect sense for the already convinced. We've grown up in the church. We understand how it's done. The creeds make sense to us. The hymns are familiar to us. Style of the sermon is comfortable to us. But I would ask you one time to think how a non-church person would react to it. I found out this very fact the hard way. When I was a senior in high school, a friend of mine was a wild, non-church, non-Christian guy. He knew that I was a Christian and I knew that he lived a wild life, but we were still friends. We played athletics together. Even though he was still in high school, he spent his weekends sleeping in the college dorm with a college woman. Uh, Monday morning would come and when we were ready for athletic practice in the locker room, he would tell us about his wild escapades at the weekend. That was very interesting information for a high school senior. Uh, I say that just to show you the orientation of his life. Uh, several months after that, the girl that he was sleeping with on weekends uh, broke up with him. Uh, it broke his heart. And so in a moment of great tenderness, he wanted to talk to me about what to do with a broken heart. And I said, do you think maybe it's time that you consider God? And he said, believe it or not, I'm thinking about considering God. And I said, are you going to take any action on it? And he said, well, I'd like to come to church with you this Sunday. And in a moment of poor judgment, I said, OK, come with me. I think you know what happened. You see, this was the first time in my life I had ever attended a traditional church service with a non-church person on my elbow. To summarize, it was the longest 60 minutes of my life. Now, again, the, the service made perfect sense to everybody who was already convinced. But for someone brand new, fresh from the world coming into the church, it made no sense at all. From the very moment that the, the service started when the prelude was played on the piano, I knew we were in trouble. See, Martha was playing the prelude. Now, Martha always played and always slaughtered the, the prelude. But we were used to it. On the way home from church, we'd say, well, she tried hard. And someone said, yeah, she left her mittens on. And someone else would say it was a very difficult piece, so uh, go easy on her. But my friend had never heard anybody slaughter music like that. He wasn't used to it. He kept wondering why someone didn't stop her. And then someone would get up to sing a special music number, a music number that had been sung a few thousand times. And the person singing the song would hold the book like this. And if they moved their arm four or five inches, it was an out-of-body experience. There was no communication, no passion, no sense of really authentic ministry going on. And then we said the creeds. That was a big hit. He didn't have a clue what was going on in the creeds. He didn't know when to stand up or sit down. So I said, just hang on to my elbow and we'll do it together. He felt a little silly, but he didn't want to be embarrassed. And I was hoping when the sermon time came that it would be a good sermon. It was not our lucky day. 
I was thinking to myself, please, not from the minor prophets. But it was from Amos that day, and it was ugly, and it went on and on and on. And I looked around me, and I realized that people didn't know what the pastor was talking about. A little later, I discerned that the pastor didn't even know what he was talking about. And my friend just wanted to vanish. What seemed like hours later, uh, the service finally came to an end. Uh, we did not talk about the service. We went out to eat, and then I brought him home. But the next three days at school, I never saw the kid. And that was unusual because I used to see him every day. So finally, I figured out he was avoiding me, so I tracked him down. And I said, can we have an honest talk with each other? He said, sure. I said, now, we always see each other, and I think you've been avoiding me. And he said, you're right, so let me explain why. He said, now, you know that I've lived on the wild side. And I've known that you've lived as a Christian. He said, but what I've always liked about you is that even though you're a Christian, you're normal. Like, you walk normal and you dress normal. Uh, you play athletics normal. He said, but what you took me to Sunday was not normal. And he said, I wonder why someone normal like you would go to something so abnormal as that. And that was a defining moment in my life. More church leaders need to have defining moments like that. Moments when you realize that people outside the family of God are fundamentally different than those inside the family of God. They have different needs and different problems. They don't understand why we do what we do. There's a chasm between ministering to the believer and ministering to unbelievers. And church leaders have to think through the difference between a believer and an unbeliever. I had a small defining moment as I walked across the parking lot into this auditorium. When I saw the banner hanging over the door, I was touched in my heart. I asked Manfred to explain to me what the poster said. What the, and he explained that it said, in essence, that we're concerned about reaching non-churched people in Germany. But if you're really serious about that, you're really going to have to have your mind stretched. Because it's a whole different challenge reaching non-church people than it is ministering to the already convinced. What I've been hoping and praying for is that as we have some sessions together in the next few days, that we'd be able to think together about how to reach non-church people. Uh, I consider it an honor to be a fellow pastor in this struggle with you. Uh, the church that I pastor is located just outside Chicago, Illinois. And I've spent about the last 20 years trying to figure out better ways to reach non-churched Chicagoans. Some of what we've discovered there can be somewhat helpful to you here. But by the same token, some of what you might discover here might be helpful to what we're learning in Chicago. So what I'm hoping is that we can all be learners together. And what I'm hoping is that the desire to learn how to reach non-church people comes from hearts that are concerned about them. I've never really gotten that excited about the church growth movement, per se. Sometimes I wonder why pastors want to build great big churches. Uh, sometimes I think they want to find a secret formula so they can have a big reputation and a big influence. And I don't think that's the spirit of Christ. I think the spirit of Christ says that church growth starts with the church inside the pastor. The first church that has to grow is the church in me and the church in you where we authentic, 
we authentically relate to Christ and the love of Christ then gives us a love for lost people. If it doesn't start there, then you're just into formulas and secrets. And I think you wind up then uh, bearing fruit that does not remain. It's a church built on the wrong foundation. Um, by God's grace, I have been able to speak to many pastors all around the world. And one of the most disheartening things I learned is that most pastors don't have a single close relationship with a non-churched person. I used to stand in front of groups of pastors and say, raise your hand. How many of you have had dinner with a non-church person in the last six weeks? No hands would go up. And then I would say, well, how many of you have done something athletically or gone out to breakfast with a non-church person in the last 12 months? And no hands would go up. And I would say, so let me get this straight. You came to this conference so that you could grow your church to reach lost people and you don't even know one? You don't even uh, care enough or apportion the time enough yet to build a relationship with someone outside the family? And uh, I have learned that churches don't grow until pastors, churches in their hearts, grow toward lost people. Show me a pastor who has loving concern for a non-church person, and I'll show you a church that begins to have the similar kind of passion. And uh, one of the most challenging things in my life is to keep the church in my own life growing. One of the priorities I've tried to keep over the last 20 years has been to always cultivate relationships with some non-churched guys. Because when you're up close to somebody who's outside the family of God, uh, God really works on your heart. Remember the time the rich young ruler came to Jesus? Uh, here's a competent, uh, aggressive, leadership-type person. He's breathing life into his business. He's breathing life into his friends. There's a dynamic potential resident in his life. And the little phrase in Scripture says, and Jesus had a love for him. That's the kind of reaction many of us should have to non-church people in and around our communities, where we look at a person and we say, here's someone who matters to God and they don't even know it. Here's someone who is one prayer away from being redeemed. Here's a person one decision away from being a part of the body of Christ at my church. And maybe God intended for me to be the link between that person and the kingdom. Uh, as I stand before you now, I'm, I'm standing as someone who is very refreshed spiritually. Uh, I'm refreshed because in recent months, I've been able to lead a friend to Christ. It took me two years to build a relationship with the man. All that time was just establishing trust and establishing communication. I'll never forget the night he asked me for a Bible. And then I'll never forget when he would call me and he would say, what does this verse mean? What does this verse mean? And then a few months ago, I received the phone call that all of us uh, love to receive. My friend was on the other end of the line and he said, I made the decision today. Now, what's better than that? When God uses you to touch a single human life, there's nothing better than that. And once you get a taste of what it's like to lead someone to Christ, it just comes out of you and it spreads throughout your whole church. And when you have a few people in your church who are brand new Christians, you will preach differently. You will pray differently. You will seek to be creative in your services. In other words, your whole enthusiasm for the church will change. But I have to say again, it comes back to you. And I think that that's a challenge that all of us should own. Uh, I never intended to be a minister. Uh, my life was heading off into the business world in my father's footsteps. 
God sort of stood in that path and uh, led me another direction. And when I first started to head toward vocational Christian work, I worked as a youth pastor. And uh, I stood in front of a youth group of about 25 kids and I opened my Bible and started to teach them. And I prepared diligently and I taught just as aggressively as I could. And the Word of God began to transform the lives of those high school kids. And I saw changes happening in the way they related to each other and the way they cared for their unsaved friends. So after many months of teaching, I finally did a series on evangelism. And uh, at the end of that series on evangelism, I said, now are we going to just read the Word of God or are we going to heed it? I think, I said, I think we should go out and put this into action. And the kids liked me a lot and they trusted me, so they said, okay. They said, what should we do? I hadn't given any thought to that, so I started to kind of make it up as I went along. I said, okay, here's what we'll do. And my mind was racing. And then very confidently, I said, here's the plan. I said, you go into your high schools and you talk to your friends about Christ and invite them to come to this little group. Bring them right back to this exciting little Bible study that we have and we'll see God do marvelous things. Total silence. No enthusiasm at all for that plan. And then I did one of the few things that I've done in my past that was really smart. I said, what's wrong with the plan? So one person raised his hand and said, uh, Bill, I have something to say. He said, I would be a little embarrassed to invite one of my friends to come just because we're meeting in the dirty corner of, of the basement of the church. I mean, I, this, is, this is not a good place to bring a non-church person. I'd be embarrassed about that. I said, well, we can change the location. We'll move upstairs into the gymnasium. And the kid said, I, I would feel much better. I'd feel proud to invite my friend there. Then another person raised her hand and said, I have a problem. I said, well, go ahead. Tell me what it is. She said, I have a little problem inviting uh, an unsaved high school friend to the kind of music we use in this group. Now, in our group, we had a kid who played a 12-string guitar, and he tuned it annually whether it needed it or not. He only knew four songs, so we sang those to death. And so I understood her concern. And the co-leader of the group said, we can change the music and we can make the music relevant to your friend. And so I said, I think we can fix the music. Music will have Christian lyrics, God-honoring lyrics, but it'll have a contemporary style. Then a girl stood up and said, and I think if we're going to invite our unsaved friends, I think we ought to show them Christian drama. I didn't even know what Christian drama was. So I said, do you know how to do Christian drama? She said, no, but I'll try. I said, you can be the drama director. Okay. Then another kid said, uh, I'd like to talk to you about your teaching. And I got a little defensive. And I said, lay not thine hand against God's anointed. That verse always comes in handy when you need it, doesn't it? I keep that one right here. But I said, no, tell me, if, what about my teaching concerns you? He said, well, uh, when you teach sometimes, Bill, you go all over the Bible and you have five or six different unrelated points. He said, we listen because we like you. But there, our friends don't know you and might not even like you. And I said, so give me some suggestions. And they said, why don't you try to just speak about one central issue? Why don't you make sure it comes right out of the Bible and show them how it can apply to their life that day? I said, ah, that'll never work. I had never thought about teaching in a way that would be relevant to non-church people. But I thought I'd give it a try. 
So then I said to them, okay, if we change the location and change the music and add the drama and change the teaching style, if we make all those changes, then would you be excited about inviting your friends to uh, an event like that? And they said, that's an exciting plan. So we set the date. Now, we kept meeting as believers, but now we had a mission. There was a date on the calendar where we were going to invite non-church, unsaved students to our event. But we had something to pray for. We had something to work for. And we had something to ask God to do a miracle about. So the night came. And several hundred high school students, unsaved high school students came. I wish I could show you a videotape of that. The thing I would want you to see is how proud the Christian kids were. When the music started, it was contemporary and it was high quality. And the Christian kids would poke their unchristian kids, say unsafe friends and say, pretty good, huh? And then when the drama was done, it showed some slice of life that was fascinating or funny or sad, but it, uh, it was identifiable. And so the unsafe kids were riveted their attention and the Christian kids were proud and they were praying. And when it came time for me to preach, I would choose one simple truth right out of Scripture, teach on it and apply it to their lives. And after the meeting was over, very few kids left. They just wanted to sit around and talk and say, is this what Christianity might be? And the conversations would flow and kids started to take steps toward Christ. And then came another defining moment in my life. After doing this for many months, we decided that on one particular outreach evening, I would present the gospel. I talked to our Christian core and I said, now on this particular night, when all of us bring our unsaved friends, I'm going to just give the simple truth of what it means to become a Christian and let's pray for a harvest of souls. So in our believers meeting, we prayed and we passed out printed invitations to their friends to come that night. We worked very hard on the music and the drama and the other program elements. And I started praying that God would give me a message. And as the time got closer, students would come to me and a football player would say, I'm bringing my whole team, Bill. You better be good. And one of the young girls would say, I'm bringing the whole, uh, you know, like the whole cheerleading squad. So you better not mess it up. And I felt the pressure mounting and it drove me to my knees in prayer. But there was an excitement building. So the night finally arrived and it began to unfold just that just like we prayed it would. And when it came time for me to give the message, God anointed the message. And at the end of the talk, I decided to ask kids if they wanted to give their lives to Christ. But I had never given an invitation before. I didn't know how to do it. I saw Billy Graham do it on television a few times, but that's about it. So at the end, I just said, if you would like to give your life to Christ, just stand up. And about 300 high school kids stood up. We spent the next two to three hours in small group prayers, kids standing in line to pray to receive Christ. Lines got so long, we had to go drag the deacons out of their meeting, ask them to come over and do something really important. And when they came over and helped lead kids to Christ, they knew it was important. Um, as all the kids left that night, I was the last one out of the church. When I turned off the last light, I went out the back door. It was well past midnight and I was emotionally drained. I remember stepping outside and leaning against the brick wall of the church. My knees sort of collapsed and I remember sliding down the brick wall and collapsing on the sidewalk. Then I just started to cry and I'm not the crying type. And I tried to ask myself, 
why am, why am I so emotional? And then I believe the Holy Spirit showed me why. It was like the Holy Spirit said, Bill, where would these 300 kids be if you hadn't created a service for them? Where would they be if you hadn't created a safe place for them to hear about the life-changing message of Christ? Remember earlier in my talk, my father said he had a friend that he wanted to bring to our church. I said, don't bring him to our church because it's not conducive for where he is spiritually. Remember the disaster that happened with my high school friend when I brought him to our church. Well, now, at this stage in my life with this youth group, there was a safe place. There was a place where seekers could come and grow and learn about Christ. That night on that sidewalk, I made a commitment to God. I said, God, as many years as you will give me to do ministry, I make this vow to you. I will do everything in my power. And I will ask for all of your power to create safe places for unbelievers to come to investigate Christianity. So when we started Willow Creek Community Church, I kept that commitment. Our weekend services are devoted to being safe places for unchurched people. Our midweek services are for believers. And we started with just a very small flock. And just this past weekend, it was a typical weekend, somewhere between 14 and 15,000 people came to the weekend services. And in our midweek believer services, there's somewhere between five and 6,000. And here, 20 years later, our believers still feel like we have a mission. We have a place to invite our friends to. And we have something to pray about. And I still have men and women coming up to me and they say, my boss is coming this weekend. Don't mess it up. And we're doing evangelism together. And I have to tell your friends, it's an exciting way to do church. Now, let me make a few closing remarks and then I'll end. As we talk the rest of today and tomorrow, please understand this one thing. I have no interest in you trying to copy what we're doing at Willow Creek. But I have an enormous interest in you thinking about what you can do to reach non-church people. Scripture say in 1 Corinthians 12, there is one spirit, but many ministries. You know, there's one goal that we have, but we're going to do it a lot of different ways. And what I want to do is to say to you, pastors, let God give you a new vision and let God stretch your mind and let God give you the courage to try some new things and Realize it's better to try and fail than to never try. And if God will give you a new vision for reaching non-church people, and as you carry it out, when you see some people coming to Christ and coming into the church, and you feel the enthusiasm that comes as the church is growing because people are coming to faith, you will be a revitalized pastor. Something will happen in your spirit that will revitalize you on the inside. And those of us who love the church so much, give God great glory for the way it is advancing in power. Remember Jesus' words, By this is my Father glorified, if you bear much fruit. Shall we pray?